Hello, everyone. Welcome to our new podcast, Conversations with CLASP. My name is Christine Egan, and I'm CLASP's CEO. Today's conversation is part of a series of interviews we're conducting with clean energy access stakeholders around the globe, discussing the impacts of COVID on the industry, their work, and consumers. In our position as CLASP, we care about not only the clean energy access sector surviving, but thriving through this pandemic. The message we want to convey through this interview is that off-grid consumers and stakeholders are experiencing real and potentially long-term implications that threaten the future of energy access for the world's most vulnerable populations. We hope that through an open and candid conversation, we will demonstrate the importance of interventions to support customers and other actors through this difficult period. Today, we're sitting down for a virtual conversation with Huda Jaffer from Silco Foundation. Huda is the director of Silco Foundation. She's a product, service, and systems designer with a keen interest in user-centric design, specifically for sustainability and developmental issues. She's an undergraduate in design from Shristi School of Art, Design and Technology in Bangalore, and has a master's of science in engineering and business from Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Cambridge. She's played a critical role in growing the capacity and processes of Selco Foundation in order to build the ecosystem for sustainable energy access for the poor. And with that, I'm going to ask Huda to just tell us a little bit about your role and work at Silco in your own words, if you would. Thank you so much. So um, I'm primarily a product service systems designer, like you said. I joined Silco about 10, 11 years back, and uh, it's been my first and only job. <laughs> and uh, basically cut across the teams. I'm part of the core team within Selco Foundation. Uh, so I work to sort of further that nexus, as you said, of energy health, energy livelihoods, uh, and to sort of look at how do we actually bring it to last mile populations in a long-term and impactful manner. That's great. Tell us, Huda, a little bit more about your perspective on this pandemic, and in particular, the on-the-ground context in India actually how how this is holding and obviously in the work and scope of Selco but you know the, the particularly the India perspective as well so the impact of the pandemic has not been uh, very different from any other part of the world right I think the global globally what we're facing is very similar uh, in a very united manner and in India I think a few of the a few of the things that have been eroded and that have really sort of taught us lessons uh, one is definitely on the livelihood side so across the sectors, across the subsectors, you know, you name it right from the micro, small, medium to even the larger uh, livelihood segments uh, and enterprises uh, have been eroded in a significant manner. You know, loss of livelihoods, loss of jobs, um, you know, loss of a lot of investment and transaction right. costs that has gone into building these systems, right? Right. And the second thing is really, I think, the, the impact that it's had and the, on our health infrastructure and the health systems. So that has been significant. Uh, I mean, we definitely uh, feel it very strongly in terms of the lack of health infrastructure in meeting any pandemic close to this, right? 
But I do think, you know, just like any other country and, uh, you know, there is no one stakeholder to blame for this and it's not the government's fault. Right. I think a lot of it is, you know, as a society and civil society and private uh, organizations as well, you know, it's, it's, it's our role to, to have prepared for this in one way or the other. And, right. you know, while everything is still ongoing and still uncertain, uh, we do believe this has set us back at least by 10 years. Um, you know, so, so it's something that we, we do need to rethink. Like we would, I think in Selco, you know, we always thought we were on the second floor and the third floor, but then suddenly we realized that, you know, the basement and the first floor starts to flood and, yes. uh, yeah. and you need to rethink uh, where you are. So, well, um, and we want to, I really want to talk to you because Selco is really uniquely placed, I think, to talk about both of the things you just raised, both the health and energy access sector and overlap, as well as the productive use, the livelihoods piece. Taking up the, the health and energy access sector first, um, your team really does work across various technologies to deliver essential health services with improved access and demonstrate that better health services lead to better utilization of electricity. From your perspective, what are the biggest challenges in this pandemic of delivering high quality healthcare for off-grid communities. And talk a little bit about what you saw before COVID and what you're seeing now after COVID. Are there, are there differences or is it just the same problems exaggerated and intensified? Tell us a little bit more about how from this really unique position you see this, this crisis. Sure, sure. So, I mean, delivering healthcare to last mile populations, sustainable energy, energy efficiency, sustainability in general has a huge role to play in that, you know, as a, as a core catalyst in actually enabling that to happen. And while the, the problems existed, I think the main change that we see, um, you know, because of COVID and during and, and post COVID is, is really a focus shift. Uh, you know, initially we were very focused around, you know, maternal and child health, uh, we were focused around malaria. We were focused around, you know, the value chains for blood and operating theaters. And I think the attention during this phase has been mainly on the the, the pandemic and co the, the disease itself, right? COVID right. itself, the infection right. itself. And so it's shifted a lot of the attention to COVID-related infrastructure. Um, but I think the hope in that is that, you know, at least the hope is that it would actually create a long-lasting sustainable infrastructure even for other health services for to be other, provided right. uh, strongly like you can actually use this analogy across the different other different health sectors and subsectors uh, that need to be provided um, for last mile populations. Yeah. That makes sense. Given that how has Selco Foundation changed its operations and strategy in in delivering health services? I would imagine there with this you know there's a lot of focus on prenatal prenatal and postnatal and maternal care, right? There's a switch now, I would imagine, to respiratory or other, you know, other devices. I'm, I'm curious how this changes your own operations. I mean, even down to the equipment you're focused on and you're, and you're looking at the technologies. Right, right. right. So, you know, we haven't changed philosophically. Uh, you know, the approach remains the same. I think if anything, it's sort of, um, you know, strengthened uh, the whole sort of call to action to create local ecosystems. Uh, it's really kind of strengthened that need for uh, decentralization, that need to have, you know, to empower last mile health, as well as, you know, district hospitals and sort of mid-healthcare that needs to be provided. Um, and it's 
reinforced a lot of our, our original thoughts uh, that we had about, you know, how do we look at energy as a catalyst to really provide these and not just as a supply side uh, issue, right. you know. Right. So I right. think it has sort of strengthened uh, what we have been doing, both in terms of strategy and operations. The shift has been, like I said, more on the type of appliance and the kind of subsector. I think I think that is still in interim and hopefully parallelly and with that, we are able to build uh, lasting approaches and systems for, for energy health to, to scale in general. And that gets to a little bit of maybe some of the opportunities. What are, so there's some hidden opportunities in this pandemic on the health side, and it sounds like sort of validating your approach and pushing harder, taking advantage of the moment for, for meaningful, lasting change is certainly in the category of some of the opportunities that you're seeing. What are some of the other opportunities and, and or pivots that you think are important yeah. to highlight for the health sector? Yeah, um, huge opportunities. And I think some of them, as I mentioned, you know, right from decentralization to efficiency in appliances to localization. And I right. think what this is also doing is forcing not just the industry, but also the governments and civil society to really sort of innovate more around low resource settings uh, and building resilience around these systems, right? I mean, just for example, we actually see a lot more manufacturers and innovators now designing for low resource setting, uh, you know, adapting it within their design, within their offering, within their solutions. So, uh, you know, those are some of the opportunities that have emerged uh, out of this. Well, that's a great pivot because I imagine having that local local manufacturing, local production in these settings creates some ec- economic opportunities, right? With that comes local jobs. So that seems like a great pivot to moving the discussion over to the, the productive use and livelihoods sector. Just to let folks know, your team also pilots quite a lot of new technologies at customer businesses to assess usability and design and financial models that are appropriate for each technology type. Talk a little bit more, if you would, about the opportunities that you're seeing for productive use for customers and end users in this pandemic period. What are the livelihood opportunities that you're, that you're seeing? Sure, absolutely. So, I mean, in livelihoods, we've been working, um, you know, on understanding different value chains uh, of livelihoods, right? Right from dairy, millet, flour, chili, sort of different livelihoods, horticulture, and really seeing where and how efficiency and energy can augment those types of livelihoods to further decentralize them and to provide better impact for last mile, small and marginal farmers or allied businesses, right? And I think during this pandemic, you know, like I was saying, it's reinforced the need for a lot of decentralization. And I think you find a lot of demand or a lot of appreciation or even a lot of understanding increasing uh, for solutions that lead to local production and local consumption. So right from, you know, hydroponics for feed and fodder, uh, feed and fodder machines itself, cold storage systems, I think there is definitely a huge, you know, peak in what this can do for future sales and for incomes of small and marginal farmers. Uh, Basically, a lot of the um, post-harvest kind of processes that that have really taken a lot of interest of both government, civil society, and end users as well. Uh, You know, there would be people who wouldn't typically see value because they would just go to the nearby district and source it. And, and, but I think it has given rise to at least the idea of potential entrepreneurship and opportunity to actually decentralize these processes further. Are there devices or technologies or processes in any of these categories that you see as particularly 
critical. You've mentioned cold chain. I know that's one that we've we've really spent a lot of time focusing on as an organization. But in terms of what really would offer the technologies that really offer relief and opportunity during this time, are there are there particular technologies and devices that you yeah. think are the most important to emphasize the need for and, and particularly this need for local yeah. Uh, yeah. localized yeah. and decentralized approaches? Yeah, yeah. So the thing that's come out as most essential is any livelihood that's connected to the food or the health value chain. So like you Make see sense. a lot of the people that were making, you know, that were making masks were able to, I mean, that were making cloth and, you know, using sewing machines, they were able to adapt to masks. To pivot. You know, a lot yep. of, exactly. A lot of the people that were making, um, you know, maybe just making like chili powder and so, you know, producing it locally and providing it locally, uh, started packaging it and also sending it to nearby villages. So I think right. anything that was connected to food or health value chains and the livelihoods involved within those uh, were some things that were looked at as more essential. So all of those appliances were, were still very much uh, but there were other sectors where, you know, they weren't directly connected to the food and health value chain. And of course, those sectors have seen much worse impacts uh, than the food and health value chains uh, of in course. terms of livelihoods. Of yeah. Course. yeah, The textile industry, I think just today there was a news of an 800 uh, weaver uh, society that actually completely shut down. 800 weavers and artisans that, that had no other option but to just close down. So I think that's been uh, devastating. And while it right. is important to look at, you know, drudgery reduction and mechanization and decentralization there, they couldn't survive and withstand uh, the path, uh, the, you know, the, the pandemic itself. Well, and this gets a little to one of the other questions are of variances that you're seeing in the COVID impacts and the relief needs across different communities in India, are, are there any other variations or, or sort of interesting stories about how how this how the impact of this is not uniform? Yeah, um, yeah. no, it isn't uniform. It's been so different. Uh, I think right from sectors of poultry to dairy to you know millets, it's been very different for each of the sectors. Uh, although erosion at multiple levels and for and at multiple scales, uh, but I think India in general or any place in general would have that, right? It's, it all depends yep. on the people and the local cultures and the, and the ability to adapt and respond. And I think even in terms of the COVID response itself, uh, it has not been as standard. You, know, you have certain regions which have taken sure. very different approaches and certain regions which have done it very differently and, and both have had positive results because certain things worked for, you know, more clustered communities, different kinds of, uh, you know, cooking, I mean, food needs. So I think there has been a variance uh, and, uh, it, it's you know it depends on on what the local value chains are and what the, where the local potential lies as well. That makes sense. I know that you work quite a bit with product manufacturers as well, and I'm I'm curious what you're seeing. We, we've talked a lot about the impact on customers and individuals, but I'm I'm actually curious what what do you think about the impacts on different manufacturers that you work with, and what are the trends? You know both positive and concerning in the industry impact and the and the industry response and and maybe even who's most affected by supply chain disruptions or how is that playing out in in, in different industries in response to this just switching from the user perspective to the to the manufacturers how are they sure. how are they being impacted by this sure, sure. so it has been a huge impact both on the you know the clean energy enterprises as well as the manufacturing enterprises the the efficient manufacturing enterprises both in terms of small as well as medium size where it's impacted 
and uh, you know we don't know about the pricing strategy yet because i think one of the things that also comes out is specifically um india and the geopolitical relationship with china that it has uh, you do have them needing to adapt to right. finding some of the local parts right because not everything is now right. coming from there so how do we actually locally provide some of the local um, parts that are needed uh, for these uh, you know, for these systems to actually be to work and to be manufactured um efficiently sure. and in a timely manner and and in an affordable manner so pricing strategy we we don't know much about that yet um but in general i think uh, you know people have had to lay off uh, employees you know there there has been uh, or you know pay them uh, partially and not fully so there has been a lot of transaction costs that have been deteriorated i think more than anything like the need for you know disaster related mentorship uh, is what they need like what do you prioritize first who do you pay off right. first you know right. how do you actually keep the, keep the enterprises going yeah as a business so um you know supply chain disruptions have ha- happened across the board so there isn't any you know i think even sometimes when i hear you know uh, social enterprises suffering or you know or uh, you know certain segments suffering i i think that's a story that you will hear across the board i think be yep. it you know large companies or aviation industry so you know just the small and medium it's just a ripple effect and and that has impacted uh, across uh, the different types and and sizes of the enterprises right On our side, we've actually spoken with dozens of companies that sell efficient appliances and of course, I mean not surprisingly, we're finding that the lockdowns and the economic turmoil is is really acts, you know, impacting all aspects of the business from from inventory, you know, to sales and obviously distribution. It's a really challenging time to be to think be thinking about that. Um we as an organization joined uh with many of our partners and endorsed a letter calling on donors foundations and philanthropies to mobilize quickly really to provide relief funding and as you say mentorship for the energy access um we see this as critical to safeguard the collective progress that we've made towards sustainable clean energy and reliable energy for all i'm so struck by your comment that we thought we were on the first floor maybe the second floor or the third floor and now all of a sudden we realize oh the basement's flooding right we this is this is a really important moment to make sure we keep our our foundation um and the base of the building safe and with that i guess i i would love to just hear you tell me a little bit about sort of your concern for the long term impacts of this pandemic on the clean energy access sector you know we obviously can we get the water out of the basement fast enough what where where are the yeah, what are the yeah, long term yeah. concerns that you have yeah. as someone who's just so wise and spent so much time in the sector so i think we we should be really careful about these you know distress packages and bailouts because i think one of the things that that we uh, the danger of what might happen is that we might actually end up putting more resources into previously inefficient systems right we should we should try and ensure that these bailouts and distress packages don't you know enforce us to go back to the to to what we were doing previously and go back to business as usual but this is really that chance to rebuild and build back better so the way right. in which these you know distress and bailout packages are designed is is essential to sort of ensure that you know it does reach grassroots level smes it does reach you know the the local level enterprises because previously you know they were marginalized and and again they continue to be marginalized and i think they're the hardest hit you know literally there's a danger of 
starvation. You know, they have a delay of two to three months. So I'm glad this is something that CLASP is doing and doing really strongly. And I think definitely it pushes us to further deviate packages towards the grassroots. If that doesn't end up happening at this time, uh, we really face the risk of, uh, you know, alienating them further and saying you should have not existed in the first place, right? Right. So that being said, uh, and you asked about what are you concerned about in the long-term impacts? Well, uh, I'm I'm not really concerned about negative long-term impacts, but the hope is really on positive long-term impacts on the sector. And I really hope that stakeholders are able to peel the onion and really, you know, get to the core of what is needed, uh, you know, within the clean energy access sector. So, yeah. Well, we always like to try to end on a positive note. So you've actually um, jumped to what my, really my final questions, which is what are the silver linings of this pandemic? And, and obviously the opportunity to rebuild better and to get it right and to get focused mm-hmm. on the right stuff and really go deeper yeah. is one of them. And you've articulated that really well. Are there any other things from silver linings or that you want to convey about the urgency and necessity of action within the clean energy access sector as we, as we navigate these incredible times. Yeah. Yeah. So I do think, you know, we are one of the few industries that should offer hope, Uh, you know, already because mainly because we have thought about this crisis in the context of climate change. And I think like people are talking about a vaccine for COVID, but there is going to be a hurricane next year. And we've thought about that, right? So I think this is the time for this industry to really, you know, come up with solutions and implementation on adaptation and mitigation of pandemics, right? So I do feel we are one of those few industries who can offer hope. And uh, in terms of the call to action that you said, you know, this is a time for philanthropies and other civil society to open their purses. You know, I think a lot of people, you know, keep things aside for a rainy day. This is the rainy day. And I think, you know, instead of spending time and effort on data and analysis, I think this is a time for implementation. Like I would rather that, you know, we all implement and fail than be accused of inaction. I think this is really that time to do that with a renewed sense of urgency, right? And that really brings me to the silver linings that you mentioned, because one is, uh, this is that time when you do see a renewed sense of urgency uh, to be both self-reflective and to act. So that is one of the silver linings that I, that I feel has, uh, you know, the pandemic has actually exposed. The second one that I feel, which was probably true before, but is still, I think, more uh, towards uh, what we were talking before, but really challenging the status quo. I think that's the other silver lining that we see uh, during this pandemic, uh, you know, investing in local ecosystems, investing in decentralization. And the third, and I think this is probably what, what we're, the con- this conversation that we're having is about as well, um, is on collaboration. I mean, what we've seen as right. part of this pandemic is unprecedented collaboration between public and private, which is so important. Uh, you see great examples of that having lasting impacts, uh, as well as cross-sectoral linkages and interdisciplinary kind of collaborations, which are extremely essential to sort of, uh, you know, react or, or build systems which are more resilient. So those are sort of the three main silver linings that I would well, collaboration is a, a philosophy and an idea that's near and dear to class heart. It's, it's what we're built on. And uh, if that is a silver lining that comes out of this, we're, we're extremely excited. But I also hear really a call in what you're asking for the donor and philanthropic community to step up, but also a call to the clean energy access sector to, to really grab on to the decisive and positive change role they can play in response to a global shock like this 
knowing that this pandemic is part of a broader climate crisis and that other challenges are coming and, and positioning the clean energy access sector in this hopeful way as, as just a critical part of the recovery and the resilience in really unprecedented challenge and unprecedented times. I'm personally really grateful to be able to have a conversation with, with you about this. I'm so glad that you would take your time and talk about this and help us uh, draw attention to these critical issues. I've really enjoyed the conversation and appreciate the, the wisdom that you've shared. So just ending in gratitude and you know, humility, partnership and collaboration as we tackle this work um, and go forward in the sector. Absolutely. I mean, I would echo everything that you're saying. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. That's great. Thanks a lot.